I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award and Release Order and see why the film's so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me is always my co-host, Blaine Dower. How are you today, Blaine? I'm doing well. How about you, Trey? Good, thank you. This time we're looking at the 29th Annual Academy Awards covering films released in 1956 and the Best Picture winner of that year, Around the World in 80 Days, directed by Michael Anderson. The film was released on October 17, 1956, and featured David Niven as Phineas Fogg, Canton Floss as Passepartout, Shirley MacLaine as Princess Ayuda, and Robert Newton as Inspector Fix. The film's screenplay was written by James Poe, John Farrow, and S.J. Perelman, based on the 1873 novel by Jules Verne. Our synopsis today, as usual, comes from Wikipedia. The film opens with a prologue presented by the journalist Edward R. Murrow, featuring footage from Malay's A Trip to the Moon, explaining how, over time, technology has led to a progress in travel, before then dissolving into England in 1872. An English gentleman, Phileas Fogg, claims he can circumnavigate the world in 80 days. He makes a 20,000-pound wager with four skeptical fellow members of the Reform Club that he can arrive back 80 days from exactly 8.45 p.m. that evening. Together with his resourceful valet, Passepartout, Fogg goes hopscotching around the globe, generously spending money to encourage others to help him get to his destinations faster so he can accommodate tight steamship schedules. They set out on the journey from Paris by a gas balloon named La Coquette upon learning the mountain train tunnel was blocked. The two accidentally end up in Spain, where Passepartout engages in a comic bullfight. Next, they go to Brindisi. Meanwhile, suspicion grows that Fogg has stolen 55,000 pounds from the Bank of England, so police inspector Fix played by Robert Newton, is sent out by Scotland Yard to trail him, starting in Suez. Fix keeps waiting for a warrant to arrive so he can arrest Fogg in the British ports they visit. In India, Fogg and Passepartout rescue young widow Princess Ayuda, played by Shirley MacLaine, from being forced into a funeral pyre with her late husband. The three visit Hong Kong, Yokohama, San Francisco, and the Wild West by way of the Sioux Nation. After sailing across the Atlantic and only hours short of winning his wager, Fogg is arrested upon arriving at Liverpool by the diligent yet misguided Inspector Fix. At the jail, the humiliated Fix informs Fogg that the real culprit was caught in Brighton. Although he is now exonerated, he has insufficient time to reach London before his deadline and thus has lost everything. But the love of the winsome Ayuda. Upon returning to London, Fogg asks Passepartout, to arrange a church wedding for the next day, Monday. Salvation comes when Passepartout is informed by the vicar that the next day is actually Sunday, 
Fogg then realizes that by traveling east towards the rising sun and crossing the international date line, he has gained a day. There is still just time to reach the reform club and win the bet. Fogg arrives at the club, club just before the 8.45 p.m. chime. Passepartout and Ayuda then arrive, shocking everyone, as no woman has ever entered the club before. So I wanted to start, Blaine, by what did you think over all of the film? And was this your first time seeing it? Yeah, this is my first time seeing it. I enjoyed the book, which I've read not just privately, but also for one of the topics in Bedtime in the Public Domain. So I actually resisted watching this simply because everything about the marketing for it, and the you know, the cases, the posters, they very prominently feature a hot air balloon that's used early on. And the only mention of a hot air balloon in the novel is two sentences near the end saying, well, this technology exists, but it's way too slow and unreliable and difficult to control. And Phileas Fogg would never use one. <laughs> so when that was what they were using to promote it, I was thinking it's probably not going to be faithful and it's going to rub me the wrong way. So I was fairly pleased that the hot air balloon episode, while it is in the movie, it was right off the bat. It led to the bullfighting, which apparently was there because Kenton Flass actually is an experienced bullfighter and refused to use a double. So he actually did a bullfight on film. And then after that sequence right at the beginning it stays faithful so yeah i was generally pleased with how close it was to the book i just find that the pacing is a little off it feels slow compared to the feel i get when i'm actually reading the book in my hand what did you think of the prologue i found that to be a little odd i'm sorry it, it just it struck it it kind of I understood what they were trying to do, but it kind of sapped momentum right from the jump. Yeah, I mean, part of it was because I think this was very much a cameo film. This started the celebrity cameo when you have that huge name that's on screen for five seconds. And in cases like Frank Sinatra, don't even speak. And this does start off with Edward R. Murrow, who was a major newscaster. He was not an actor. So it almost felt like they were trying to justify his involvement and they were talking about the importance of the story and setting it up, because this is one of the few stories that can't be shifted in time. Just the whole premise. Can't have it much earlier than that 1873 publication date, because then the 80 days around the world isn't possible with public transportation. And you can't do it much later, because then 80 days is not a challenge. Right. I mean, the challenge today would be 80 minutes. 80 hours would be a breeze if you've got money like Phileas Fogg does. So, yeah, I think that's what they were going for, but you're right. It is odd. The IMDb says that that includes the complete trip to the moon by Georges Méliès. It does not. It's it's not, no. It's four minutes, and the original is about 13 minutes. Um, Edward R. Murrow says that he committed it to 35mm film, which is also not accurate. Uh, records aren't detailed enough to say whether Méliès used 16 or 24 millimeter film, but 35 millimeter film was not available in Europe until 1909, and he made that in 1902. So whatever film stock he used, it wasn't 35 mil. I do recommend tracking down a trip to the moon. It is a watershed moment in film history, even if they don't understand the science as well as the authors that they were inspired by, because they get back from the moon to Earth by pushing 
their craft over the edge of the moon and then it just falls, which is a clip included here. But, but it does have a lot of really great visuals. It does, yeah. It was the first movie that ever built sets. It was the, the first one that was, yeah. I mean, when the movie started in the, in the late 1800s, they were essentially postcards. So it'd be, you know, President McKinley walking in the garden or Niagara Falls and maybe 30 or 40 seconds, even just a train pulling into a station. Mm-hmm. So they were a little more than animated postcards and just showing you scenery from around the world. It wasn't until 1900. Uh, again, Millet with, or maybe that was the Lumiere brothers, but it was La Rose, La Rose, it was the, the gardener sprinkle or the sprinkler sprinkled. That's the first one that had narrative structure. A gardener is watering the plants. Some teenager steps on the hose. The water stops coming. The gardener looks in the hose to see what's wrong. And the teenager takes his foot off the hose and blasts the gardener. And the gardener grabs the teen and soaks him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, it almost felt like, because the way this was shot was a bit of a travelogue around the world. So I maybe they were trying to remind people of those early days of cinema that some of the audience would remember because it was only 50 or 60 years ago. So maybe they were trying to remind people this is where movies started and they were evoking that tradition by having that travelogue component. Yeah, that was a little bit odd. Um, the intermission entr'acte and exits were much more common with this. And part of that was because producer Mike Todd wanted studios to treat this like a Broadway show. So when the movie was playing, you shut down the concession. You would pre-sell tickets with designated seating. You know, he was he was trying to make mm. it more of an event when it finally hit mass distribution in 1958. Because, well, you know, we get into that. It, it was just doing roadshow tours in 1956 because they were popular. So it wasn't... People couldn't just watch it. They were bringing it around and they were selling playbills and soundtrack albums. They were really trying to treat it like a Broadway show. Huh. So it was a very different experience, which may come into the Academy voting that we'll discuss later. Yeah, the the first time I had seen it, this was me coming back to it after years. But there, in the early days of cable TV in the States, your cable channels were essentially UHF affiliates from other parts of the country. And uh, the Chicago affiliate, WGN, had a Sunday afternoon family classics to where, you know, kind of masterpiece theater style, there was a host and a study with books. And they would show anything that they thought was family fair, but they tried to focus on literary adaptions. And I think I had first seen this on that. Okay. All right. So what were your your overall thoughts on it? It was entertaining for the most part, but it didn't really strike me. We we may get more into this when we get into the um, into some of the other nominees and what goes into the Academy's decision making. I feel like it suffers a bit from the passage of time. I, I think a lot of the um, specialness in this film. I'm struggling for a better word, but I'll, I'll stick with that. Was that you know in 1956, while you could go around the world in much less than 80 days, traveling outside of the country was a luxury for most people. So this would have been the only way they could have seen 
you know, Spain and India and uh, Japan. And this was at a time when filming in all of those locations would have still been a, a big deal. But as someone who's, you know, been to a couple of the um, locations in the film and when that no longer becomes the main selling point, I think it's a little thin. I think it completely hinges on Cantus Floss's charm. I think the film suffers for any scene that he's not in. And by and large, I think the cameos hurt it more than help it. Yeah, I can see a lot of that. I, I think we're tipping our hand. I might as well just say now, when we say, did the Academy make the right choice for best picture? My answer is going to be no. Like There are some cameos, like Buster Keaton really worked for me mm -hmm. as the train conductor, partly because it wasn't just a cameo. It was a part that needed to be there. And so many of the cameos didn't, but again, this was the first movie that did that. So there was a novelty effect that we don't experience because it's no longer a novelty. But, I mean, Buster Keaton at this point, if you haven't seen The General, which came out in 1927, it's public domain. It is my go-to. When people say they don't like silent films, I ask them to watch the first half hour of The General with me. And if at that point they want to shut it off, we'll shut it off. And I have done that now nine times. Zero of the nine people have asked me to shut it off at the half hour mark. And seven of the nine people have followed up with, do you got any more like this? So it, it's just a phenomenal movie about Buster Keaton on a train. So that was, to me, that's one of the cameos that works. It's a part that he played. It is funny. But that role would have to exist in the script with or without a star playing them. Whereas so many of the others, like Frank Sinatra's cameo as the piano player was kind of neat. But when he turns around and you get that recognition shot so you know it's Frank Sinatra, it's like a, an eight-second shot that could have been three. <laughs> right. Some of them worked and some of them didn't. You know, I thought Peter Lorre and Marlene Dietrich worked. George mm -hmm. Raft didn't. Yeah, Hermione Gingold and Glynis Johns didn't. And I think, yeah. I, I think we what we've got as the you know the common thread there is like Red Skelton for me also didn't work. Yeah. And none of those characters were necessary to the plot. If they were not huge stars, most of them, if they were filmed at all, would have been cut before the film was released because they added nothing. So I I think again they are there simply because right they they were just trying this this experiment, and they were trying to make it a spectacle, something to see. So the tagline was about seeing everything or every part of the world and what, you know, doing everything that's worth doing in the world. So they were trying to bring back the travel log days of seeing what was out there. And again, the massive cameos would give it one more level of spectacle. Well, and it's, it, it's odd, because let's shift to the main roles a little bit. So... I love David Niven, and I haven't read Around the World in 80 Days, so I'll put that disclaimer out there. But they play Phileas Fogg as such a cold fish. There's nothing there for him to really engage the audience. 
and I don't know who the POV character is in the novel, but it this almost reads like we're seeing the adventures of past part two and Phileas Fogg is just the checkbook that gets him from spot to spot. And that actually is fairly close to the novel where okay. Passport 2 is okay. the one who takes action. So in that respect, this is a very faithful adaptation where Phileas Fogg is just, no, this is what we're doing. People are like, how? Well, here's money. Make it happen. With scenes like buying the boat they're on, which doesn't have enough fuel to get to London instead of the intended Venezuela. So he buys the boat and starts saying, okay, now chop up the boat. Anything that is flammable that is not required to keep us afloat goes in the 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 stoves including the lifeboats which is one it kind of works if you're willing to say that the crew would go along with that but if you were taking something that was supposed to go to south america across the atlantic and go to england and we're not sure if we're going to have enough fuel and you're saying well put the lifeboats in the stove i don't know that the crew would go along with that but yeah, so I, I would, yeah, that, that part was fairly faithful, but part of it is the pacing, and they're, they shifted, if anything, a little bit more to, to Passport 2. Not a lot, but enough that you lose the banter, which has a lot of subtle humor in their conversations. But shifting to Passport 2 was probably because at this time, Kenton Floss was the world's number one movie star. He wasn't Hollywood's but he was the world's number one movie star and was the biggest draw on the planet. So there's some element of that. Well, and I've never seen him in anything but this, but I can believe it. I mean, he's extremely engaging in this. Yeah, he's he only did two English language films, and the other was Pepe in 1960 that did not do well. He did a lot in both Spain and Mexico. So yeah, I think... It shifted to there, and I haven't seen the Disney adaptation. I wonder if it's on Disney+. Plus. Pretty sure it was a Disney adaptation, but the more recent one where Jackie Chan played Passport 2 is one I'm interested in watching. I It, it was Jackie Chan. I think it might be on Disney+. Plus. We'll, we'll have to check after we finish recording. The other highlight for me was Robert Newton in this as Inspector Fix. If, any, if people, speaking of Disney films, if people know him from anything else, they probably know him as Long John Silver from Disney's Treasure Island. But he plays the heck out of Inspector Fix. Yeah, which is a fun role. And again, so the the novel is still more Passepartout than anyone else, but Fix and Fogg have larger roles in the novel. So, And apparently this is Robert Newton's final role and one of his conditions for playing it was that he does not touch a drop of alcohol for the full 75-day shoot. And he, as soon as they finished, he went right back to it and never put it down again. So that's why he this is his last role. So let's talk a little bit about probably what today would be the most controversial casting. Shirley MacLaine as Princess Aouda. And not just controversial casting, controversial makeup. Because... Yeah. They, they put her in brown face in India, and they made her a little less brown every stop along the trip until she's barely got any of that makeup on her when she gets to England. When she's first introduced, she's made up to look like the Indian princess, 
by the time she gets to England, she's just like a a white lady with a tan. To McLean's credit, she is the first to say she was miscast in this. Her agent set it up, and she thinks it was a mistake. Well, I mean, it, she doesn't give a bad performance. And again, I'm not trying to force us ahead, but we, you know, as we'll see, no one in this got a best acting nomination, right? So the performances mm-hmm. were fine, but not great. And you know, I'm a little torn on the subject. There's there's part of me that says you're obviously going for an international spectacle with an all-star international cast. Surely there was someone surely there was an Indian actress who could have played this part or at least someone from that general region, right? Mm-hmm. But then there's also part of me that and I think it would have been appropriate to do it given how big of a role it was. Where I'm a little torn is at the same time, I know that there are some international cameos in here that I just don't get because I don't have the context for who the person is. Like the -hmm. carriage driver at the very beginning who's kind of mugging to the camera. I know that he's a French actor, but I have no context for, oh, it's such and such, right? Yeah. So... I know that they would lose marquee name value, but then again, this is so early in Shirley MacLaine's career, I don't know that she would have added much to the marquee in terms of, oh, let's go see a Shirley MacLaine picture. I mean, this is still ahead of The Apartment. Yeah, this is her third film. Her first was The Trouble with Harry, and I forget what the second was. And even The Trouble with Harry, it's a Hitchcock film, and as much as I love Hitchcock, that's not one of my favorites. It underperformed at the box office. And I, again, one of the reasons I think Hitchcock is known as the master of suspense is because he's frankly not very good at other genres. And The Trouble with Harry is a dark comedy. I don't know if you've seen it, but for the listeners, The Trouble with Harry is that he's dead. People keep burying him thinking they're the ones that killed him. And then they find out, well, someone else thinks that they're the one that killed Harry. So they keep digging him up again to say, oh, is that the cause of death? And then they bury him again. Yeah, it's it, it's kind of, it's not like Weekend at Bernie's, but it, it kind of has that sense. Because you're right, it, everyone finds the body and they don't want to be the one who's under suspicion for finding the body. So they keep shifting it around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... It's got a great cast. I mean, Peter Fonda, blanking on the boy who would go on to play the beaver and leave it to beaver. Jerry Mathers. Jer- Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's... If you're interested, go ahead and check it out, but don't go in with high hopes. Yeah, so you're right. She was not a name draw. I wonder if if the reason that they cast Shirley MacLaine was because when they were doing the cameos, right, Bollywood names wouldn't be huge draws it wouldn't surprise me if they this wasn't going to get distributed in bollywood whereas it would be distributed in france and where they had the other international cameos it wouldn't surprise me if the studio was only picking non-white american people in cases like canton floss who was huge jose greco cesar romero like if they weren't firmly established in a market they intended to sell this film in then they wouldn't justify it and i I suspect 
that Hollywood didn't see India as a huge draw. I also think it hurt the film a bit in that, and I, I don't mean this to be insulting, but with the exception of, you know, probably Sinatra, Red Skeleton, I know Peter Lorre was still making films, obviously, but his, you know, the films that he were was most known for were all behind him. At least the American cameos, by and large, were cameos from actors whose heyday was a good decade, at least, in the past. In some cases, more like Buster Keaton, but, you know, even, you know, George Raft, Marlene Dietrich, Joey Brown, you know, they were all a good 10, 15 years past their heyday. Yeah, I think... You know, possible exceptions for maybe Glynis Johns and yeah. stuff, but yeah, you're right. For for a lot of them, it it was in the past. For some, it was best left in the past. Yeah. So I I, I think this film, I don't think we can react to it the way the 1956 audiences did because it was trying to do the spectacle because it invented that cameo. We have now seen decades of refinement of these. We've seen them do the celebrity cameo properly, and. For the most part, this doesn't, but it's hard to fault it for not doing it properly when it was the first to do it, right? This was learning how, and this is the film that made the mistakes the others learned from to figure it out, but this is the first movie that said, yeah, this is a thing that can be done. I'm in agreement with you. I I think, ultimately, this is a film that would have been perceived as great in 1956 and groundbreaking. And it's just, unfortunately, in 2021, it's not. And when stripped of its novelty, what's left isn't, is enough to be a good film. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, like, don't go watch this movie. Please still watch the movie. But stripped of its novelty, it's not a great film still. Yeah, the, the average IMDb score on this film is 6.8 out of 10, which is fair, but if we skip a little bit ahead in our conversation here, it's not really best picture territory. I'd, I'd say that is faithful. So yeah, worth watching, but it shouldn't be best picture levels. So actually, shall we go ahead and do the awards and then? Yes. So these awards were held on March 27th, 1957. So hosted by Jerry Lewis and Celeste Holm. So obviously the winner of Best Picture is Around the World in 80 Days, beating out Friendly Persuasion, Giant, The King and I, and The Ten Commandments. For Best Director, George Stevens won for Giant. Michael Anderson was nominated for Around the World in 80 Days, as were William Wyler for Friendly Persuasion, Walter Lang for The King and I, and King Vidor for War and Peace. Best Actor went to Yul Brenner for The King and I, also nominated were James Dean, posthumously nominated for Giant, Kirk Douglas for Lust for Life, Rock Hudson for Giant, and Laurence Olivier for Richard III. Best Actress went to Ingrid Bergman for Anastasia, beating out Carol Baker for Baby Doll, Catherine Hepburn for The Rainmaker, Nancy Kelly for The Bad Seed, and Deborah Kerr for The King and I. Best Supporting Actor went to Anthony Quinn in Lust for Life as Paul Gauguin, beating out Don Murray for Bus Stop, Anthony Perkins for Friendly Persuasion, Mickey Rooney for The Brave and the Bold, and Robert Stack for Written on the Wind. 
Best Supporting Actress went to Dorothy Malone for Written on the Wind, beating out Mildred Dunnock for Baby Doll, Eileen Heckert for The Bad Seed, Mercedes McCambridge for Giant, and Patty McCormack for The Bad Seed. Best Original Screenplay went to The Red Balloon by Albert Lamorisa, which I find particularly impressive because as great as that is, it's also like a 20-minute short that's silent. Well, not quite silent. Like there's a, there, It has a soundtrack. It has no dialogue. So that beat out Brave and the Bold, Julie, The Lady Killers, and La Strada. Best Adapted Screenplay was won by Around the World in 80 Days, beating out Baby Doll, Friendly Persuasion, Giant, and Lust for Life. Best Story went to The Brave One, beating out The Eddie Duchin Story, High Society, The Proud and the Beautiful, and Umberto D. Best Foreign Language Film went to La Strada, beating out The Burmese Harp, The Captain from Copenic, Gervais, and Kibitok. Best Documentary Film, or Best Documentary Feature, went to The Silent World, beating out The Naked Eye and Where Mountains Float. The Best Documentary Short Subject went to The True Story of the Civil War, beating out A City Decides, The Dark Wave, The House Without a Name, and Man in Space. Best Live Action Short Subject One Reel went to Crashing the Water Barrier, beating out I Never Forget a Face and Time Stood Still. The Best Live Action Short Subject Two Reeler went to The Bespoke Overcoat, beating out Cow Dog, The Dark Wave, and Samoa. Best Short Subject Cartoon went to Magoo's Puddle Jumper, beating out Gerald McBoing Boing on Planet Moo and The Jaywalker. The Best Music Score went to Around the World in 80 Days as a posthumous award, beating out Anastasia, Between Heaven and Hell, Giant, and The Rainmaker. We'll come back to that one. Best Scoring of a Musical Picture went to The King and I, beating out The Best Things in Life Are Free, The Eddie Duchin Story, High Society, and Meet Me in Las Vegas. Best Song went to K Sarah Sarah from The Man Who Knew Too Much, beating out Friendly Persuasion, Julie, True Love, and Written on the Wind. Best Sound Recording went to The King and I, beating out The Brave One, The Eddie Duchin Story, Friendly Persuasion, and The Ten Commandments. Best Black and White Art Direction went to Somebody Up There Likes Me, beating out Proud and Profane, Seven Samurai, The Solid Gold Cadillac, and Teenage Rebel. Note, Seven Samurai was eligible this year and somehow was not even nominated in the competitive Best Foreign Language Film category. Wow. Yeah. It's consistently in the IMDb Top 250, generally the top five, often the top three, sometimes number one. So, again, I will talk about the Academy this year. So the best color art direction went to The King and I, beating out Around the World in 80 Days, Giant, Lust for Life, and The Ten Commandments. Best black and white cinematography went to Somebody Up There Likes Me, beating out Baby Doll, The Bad Seed, The Heart of They Fall, and Stagecoach to Fury. Best color cinematography went to Around the World in 80 Days, beating The Eddie Duchin Story, The King and I, The Ten Commandments, and War and Peace. Best costume design black and white went to The Solid Gold Cadillac, beating The Power and the Prize, The Proud and Profane, Seven Samurai, and Teenage Rebel. Best costume design color went to The King and I, beating out Around the World in 80 Days, Giant, The Ten Commandments, and War and Peace. Best Film Editing went to Around the World in 80 Days, beating The Brave One, Giant, Somebody Up There Likes Me, and The Ten Commandments. And the Best Special Effects went to The Ten Commandments, beating out Forbidden Planet. Honorary Awards went to Eddie Cantor for Distinguished Service in the Film Industry. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial went to Buddy Adler. And the Gene Hirschholt Humanitarian Award went to Y. Frank Freeman. So, which of those do we want to address first? <laughs> 
Well, let's start with Best Picture. I was a little surprised because of The King and I and the Ten Commandments, but at least in my letterbox list for 1956, when it was sorted by um, most popular, I, I know you've got um, some of the figures in front of you. I don't think any of these placed particularly highly, but and it's it's been a while since I've seen Giant, but at a minimum, I, I know I like The King and I and The Ten Commandments better than Around the World in 80 Days. I think both of those films hold up better. Yeah, I I haven't seen The Ten Commandments at all. The only other two nominees I've seen are The King and I and Giant, and I saw both of those 20 to 30 years ago. So it's hard for me to do a direct comparison. But as you said, I've got the numbers up. So I think there's a lot of categories this year, including Best Picture, where the Academy simply nominated the wrong films. Of these, looking at how they've stood up historically, The Ten Commandments is really the only contender. If we look at the IMDb, or the letterboxed ones I have up here, the highest rated American release of the year mm-hmm. was The Killing, which right. would also be my pick for best ed- film editing for 1956. Um, if audiences haven't seen that one, It is quite possibly Stanley Kubrick's most commercial film. It's essentially a heist film where a whole bunch of the criminals have their own parts to play in this heist, and it's told non-linear. So you see all of one person's part, and then it goes back in time and shows you all of the second person's part, which is an editing challenge to get it all in there. But they do, and it's an interesting heist because they're stealing from a racetrack, and the titular killing is actually killing one of the horses to throw things into chaos with other things going on to throw things into chaos. And it, it's, he does a really good job with tension because fairly early on, he makes you aware of at least the broad points of all the plan, right? Mm-hmm. And you start to see little things go wrong and you don't know which little thing, if any, is going to tip over the apple cart. So you have things like, you know, oh, that guy wasn't supposed to go to the racetrack at all today. Is he going to throw things off? You, you know, that kind of thing. If if the parking attendant doesn't leave the assassin alone, things are going to go badly. You know, that kind of thing. So, Yeah, it's just, it's one of those heist films where, yeah, things go wrong and you have to see them deal with it. It It is probably my favorite heist film of all time. And that is one... Of the best picture contenders I have seen, I would put that above anything that got nominated. So that's number 10 out of, or, or number 10 on the list on Letterboxd, including a lot of foreign films above it. Number 12 is The Searchers, which mm. is very frequently held up as the archetypal Western, although I have issues with it. Written on the Wind comes in at 16 which got nominations in other categories. Giant is number 20. 21 is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Then we've got Requiem for a Heavyweight, The Harder They Fall, Merry-Go-Round. The Ten Commandments comes in at number 32 for the year. Then we have two Hitchcock films back-to-back, The Wrong Man and Hitchcock's own remake of The Man Who Knew Too Much. Barely a remake. It was actually a... He was fulfilling contractual obligations. He had one more movie to do with the studio. 
So we went back to one of his British films that he wasn't happy with, talked to his new writing partner and said, hey, have you seen this movie I did 25 years ago? Guy says, no. Perfect. Here's a two-sentence summary. Go do your own thing with it. So they are remarkably different movies. Mm -hmm. And then again, on the way down, we have Forbidden Planet coming in there with Robbie the Robot, with Leslie Nielsen. We have the 41st Stranger at My Door, but Letterboxd shows 72 results per page. And Around the World in 80 Days does not appear on the first page of results. So looking at the second page, I don't see it there either. So it's a ways down the list on Letterboxd. If we go to the IMDb with anything released in 1956 that has at least a thousand bolts and is a feature film, The Killing comes in at number five, Ten Commandments at six, and The Searchers at seven. So Ten Commandments does fare a lot better on the IMDb. And again, the history has says that's the best of the nominees. Although, I guess Letterboxd put Giant first and Ten Commandments second. And then as we go down the list, you know, again, Invasion of the Body Snatchers shows up. Giant is number 21. Forbidden Planet is 22. The Solid Gold Cadillac comes in at 26. The Wrong Man is here at 32. The Man Who Never Was is 36. The Man Who Knew Too Much is 37. Lust for Life, 38. The King and I, 39. Baby Doll, 40. So these numbers are starting to pile up. Here's Friendly Persuasion, another nominee at 46. Not to keep you in suspense for too much longer, Around the World in 80 Days comes in at number 78 out of 132. Yeah, so, I mean, I I know that you said that you haven't seen it, but a word that you've used a lot that I like is, you've called it a spectacle film. I I look at the Ten Commandments as the best direct comparison, because to me, that's a spectacle film. And they're they're similar in that, you know, they were both supposed to be epics. You've got some stunt casting done in Ten Commandments, but I think it's better stunt casting. You have some special effects that make for good cinema that have stood the test of time. So I think Ten Commandments is a case to where the novelty hasn't worn off, so I think it's better regarded. Again, I will take your word for it because I haven't seen it. Shall we do the Golden Globe comparisons? Sure. So that one, they are finally starting to list all the nominees. So the best dramatic motion picture went to Around the World in 80 Days, beating out Giant, Lust for Life, The Rainmaker, and War and Peace. The best motion picture comedy or musical went to The King and I, beating out The Bus Stop, The Opposite Sex, The Solid Gold Cadillac, and Tea House of the August Moon. Wait, they put Around the World in 80 Days in the drama category? They did. Huh. Okay. Yeah, it's, again, I would have put it more in a comedy. Yeah. Because the book is loaded with subtle humor. It's very hard not, I find it almost impossible to read that book without actually smiling as I'm doing it. So, But that may have been for the competition because of the, the other comedy musicals, like I said, it, it's only a vague memory, but I would put The King and I as the best of the comedies and musicals of the year. Yeah. Best performance by an actor in a leading role went to Kirk Douglas in Lust for Life, beating out Gary Cooper, Charlton Heston, Burt Lancaster, and Carl Malden. Best actress in a drama went to Ingrid Bergman, so the same choice the Academy made there. So beating a lot of the same women, Carol Baker, Helen Haynes, Catherine Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn. 
Best performance by an actor in a leading role comedy musical went to Kantenflas for Around the World in 80 Days. So they did recognize that one performance here. And again, I actually think Jackie Chan is a good comparison if this is your major inspiration for doing another Around the World in 80 Days because it's a very physical role that involves doing some things that frankly look completely insane, like crawling up into the basket to open a gas valve in a hot air balloon while it's above the mountains. He was the one that like, scraped the snow off mountain peaks that they were going by to help cool the champagne. But anyway, Kenton Floss beat out Marlon Brando, Yul Brenner, Glenn Ford, and Danny Kaye. The best performance by an actress in the leading role comedy or musical, Deborah Kerr for The King and I, beating out Judy Holliday, Machiko Kyo, Marilyn Monroe, and Debbie Reynolds. Best performance by actor in a supporting role went to Earl Holliman for The Rainmaker, beating Eddie Albert, Oscar Holtma, or Homolka, sorry, Anthony Quinn and Eli Wallach. Best actress in a supporting role went to Eileen Heckert for The Bad Seed, beating Mildred Dunnock, Marjorie Finn, Dorothy Malone, and Patty McCormick. So again, a lot of the same nominations, but a different decision. Best director went to Ilya Kazan for Baby Doll beating Michael Anderson, Vincent Minnelli, George Stevens, and King Bador. Most promising newcomer was, or male, a three-way tie, John Kerr, Paul Newman, and Anthony Perkins. Hmm. So we have heard some of those names since then, for sure. Anthony Perkins, obviously, Psycho, its sequels, and The Black Hole, although I don't know that he did a lot outside of those. And Paul Newman is just one of the greats. John Kerr, I had to look up. I've seen him in stuff, but he didn't have the career that the others had on film, although he seems to have a very extensive Broadway career. Uh, most Promising Newcomer Female was also a three-way tie between Carol Baker, Jane Mansfield, and Natalie Wood. So again, some names that definitely went places. Yeah, it's just, it, again, it surprises me how they decide this because like you you look at again natalie wood i i don't disagree that she's a great actress but for someone who started as a child star with miracle and 34th street and before the searchers had rebel without a cause under her belt newcomers an interesting choice to call her you know what i mean yeah yeah that's true New Foreign Star of the Year went to Jacques Bergerac for the actor, and for actress went to Tana Elg. For promoting international understanding, that went to Battle Him, beating Friendly Persuasion, The King and I, and The Tea House of the August Moon. Oddly, they had television achievements here now, so that's starting to creep in. Best TV show seems to be a five-way win between Playhouse 90, This Is Your Life, Matinee Theater, The Mickey Mouse Club, and Cheyenne. Huh. Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Mervyn Leroy. The Hollywood Citizenship Award went to Ronald Reagan. And uh, Special Achievement Awards went to Dimitri Tiomkin for Recognition of Music, Edwin Schallert for Advancing the Film Industry, and Elizabeth Taylor for Consistent Performance. And the Henrietta Award for the World Film Favorites, those went to James Dean and Kim Novak. So again, it's an interesting year, but... A lot of my favorite films of the year were not nominated by either group. Like The Killing, I think, is just exceptional. Yeah, I think what hurt The Killing was... The, the Killing is one of those films that we recognize as a classic now. 
but was kind of a box office disappointment in 56. And I think, to a certain degree, the Academy's always... I, I think it's waxed and waned based off of what you can expect certain films to make, but I think box office has always been at least some component somewhere. Yeah, maybe not total box office because they do like the independence. And while Around the World in 80 Days did eventually amass a $42 million take with a $6 million budget that was originally expected to be a $3 million budget, it didn't have a lot of that then because it was the Traveling Roadshow. That wasn't until the wide release in 1958. But I do think that, yes, performing above expectations is part of it. So not necessarily total box office dollars, but more like per screen average. Right. Or, you know, what they thought it would do. I can't fault the Golden Globes for giving Canton Floss best actor in a musical or comedy. I, I will say, I, I think Yul Brynner's win for best actor may be more, and I don't have a problem with his performance in The King and I, so I don't want this to be kind of a backhanded compliment type of situation, but it may have been more for his work in the entire year because i don't know if our listeners kind of put the numbers together but in a single year yul brenner was in or had starring roles in the king and i the ten commandments and anastasia that's a pretty good year yeah that this was definitely his year i because i think the four roles or maybe like his top five roles are would be what those three magnificent seven or, or was he Dirty Dozen? No, he was Magnificent Seven. Okay, that so I was right the first time. I second-guessed myself because I'm not generally big on the Westerns. And then he's also more infamous than famous for Westworld. Yeah. So, yeah, so again, I think as far as the best picture is concerned, the, I, I think Mike Todd's marketing pushes and having those cameos in there creating a type of film that hadn't quite been seen before and making the the theater-going experience a unique event were more driving forces behind this award than the actual quality of the film. I think he was able to give theater-goers an experience with those demands that they would not have had had they just bought a ticket and watched it like any of the other nominees. And I think people were voting for that positive experience, and that probably drove it up in their minds and helped it get that win. I, I agree with that. Yeah, so it's... Again, we're down on it, but not like some of the others. So this is this is a film worth seeing, but it's I just don't think it's best picture material. No, I, I, I agree. It, it not, in, not in the year in which it competed Uh, so who would we recommend this to i do think it's a harmless fun kind of comedic film i i would want to kind of label it as a good fun family film my only hesitation is really the pacing it is pretty much close to a three-hour film and some of that is because the movie's going, ooh, look, Japan, ooh, look, India, which again, I'm not ragging on it for, but it's doing that because 
your everyday person would never get a glimpse of those countries if it wasn't for going to go see a film like this. It, it may be a little bit slower than uh, modern audiences' attention spans will allow. Yeah, and some of that also depends a little bit on which edit you see. Like we talked about the opening with Melier and the trip to the moon. This was filmed simultaneously in Todd Ayo uh, 24 and 30. So sometimes the two cameras going, sometimes they would reshoot. Sometimes it got edited. So the version I saw is three hours and three minutes. That's the one that's available in the iTunes store. But there are other edits that get it as low as two hours and 47 minutes by omitting things such as the, you know, the Edward R. Murrow intro and things like that. So yeah, again, I I would recommend it to, to people who, who want to see it. I'm just having a hard time finding someone where I would say, watch the movie instead of read the book. Because mm. they are, the book is a little more faithful, aside from the, the hot air balloon and the bullfighting. The movie is fairly faithful, but it just doesn't quite gel the way I find the book does. It is slowly paced. What we have here is a movie that's somewhere between 2 hours and 45 minutes and 3 hours and 3 minutes, depending on which edit you see. But it could have, and arguably should have been, more like 2 hours and a half or 2 hours and 15 minutes for what happens if we're going to hold the attention of most modern audiences. So if you're accustomed to or enjoy the older, slower pace, absolutely go for it. It... It does give you a bit of a travelogue from the day. So it's just hard to come up with a group where I say, yeah, this is a must-see for that group. It's just one of those where, yeah, it's a neat little adventure. If you want to see Kasten Foss and see, you know, the biggest film star of the 1950s across the world who was barely known in the U.S., this is probably the best showpiece for it unless you speak Spanish. But I can't give it a strong recommendation. But again, not to say it's terrible, as we will find out in a few minutes when we pick our best and worst of the decade. Because mm. we've done another 10 films. This was the 30th film to win the award in the 29th Annual Ceremony, because that first ceremony had two films. Yeah, and I, I don't have an easy answer for either best or worst for the decade. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I've got my answers, but yeah, there were, they weren't easy. So... So do you have your choices, or? Uh, why don't you go ahead and go first? For my top picks, part of what helps is that as I watch each movie, I rate it on Letterboxd and keep track of those ratings. So the two films that were tied with a perfect 5 out of 5 in my Letterboxd ratings were Marty and Gentleman's Agreement. And in the end, I'm going to give it to Marty. So I just, you know, Gentleman's Agreement felt like an important film, but again, it, it it's hard to say whether or not it missed the mark despite all of its great intentions in terms of what it was trying to do for the Jewish community. Whereas Marty knew what its mark was and just nailed it. And aside from that one scene that, that we talked about when John was with us in which a Marty steals a kiss quite forcibly or tries to, and then it turns around aside from that, which would not have played the same in 1955. I just found they nailed it start to finish. So I would say the best of these 10 is Marty, although we've decided at the very end we are going to take the t our number one of those best 10, and I don't think it's going to 
Well, I know for a fact it's not going to do it because there's others from previous decades we've already picked that are better than Marty. I think I'm going to go with On the Waterfront. Marty was a, a really great surprise, but so was On the Waterfront for me. And that's the one that just kind of keeps floating to the top of my head. Before we had watched any of these, I would have just said, oh, All About Eve is going to be the hands-down winner. But no, nah, I, I think I'm going to go with On the Waterfront. Okay, which, actually, now that you bring that up, that reminds me something else that might have helped Around the World in 80 Days with the win is that anamorphic widescreen was fairly new. Ah. So the old aspect ratio of 1.37 to 1 had been around for a while. And then they went to the initial widescreen of 1.85 to 1 to try and compete with television by showing you more. And 1.85 to 1 is a better fit for the actual aspect ratio of the human vision. But then they were really trying to broaden it out. And Mike Todd, as part of the Todd AO format for here, On the Waterfront was the first anamorphic widescreen winner. Anamorphic meaning they compress the film. So if you look at the film before it goes through the projector, it's tall and skinny. Like if you're watching a widescreen film on a 4x3 television, it's actually almost exactly that same effect. So the anamorphic widescreen is where they broaden the film to spread it out to fill the screen. And the Tadeo format was new, and i personally not a huge fan because it distorts things at the edges. It's Especially if you look in the apartment and the early ones where there's straight lines in the apartment, they end up curved because of the way the anamorphic lenses were done there. They didn't properly correct for spherical aberration. So Around the World in 80 Days was the second actual anamorphic widescreen winner. So that could be part of the spectacle there. It was still, it was using that new technology. Anyway, that's our number one picks. So for the bottom pick, do you have your choice? For the bottom pick, I think I'm actually going to go with An American in Paris. I was torn between that and Hamlet. Hamlet predominantly for the way it was staged. I mean, obviously Hamlet is a play, but it was very much a play shot to film. So I tend to think that some of the artifice there is a a little less, that it's lacking directorially perhaps. But an American in Paris was just such a letdown for me in comparison to its reputation. Yeah, I can I can totally see that. Because I also went with the lowest ratings and actually had a four-way tie. There's four films that I rated as a three out of five on Letterboxd. And that's Hamlet, An American in Paris, The Greatest Show on Earth, and Around the World in 80 Days. And looking at that, I think either I was too harsh in the original ratings of Greatest Show on Earth and Around the World in 80 Days, or I was too generous with America in Paris and Hamlet, because they're not in the same category. The bottom pick was also between an America in Paris and Hamlet for me, and possibly because I'd seen an America in Paris the first time so young, it it wasn't as disappointing because I didn't have the build-up. I went with Hamlet as the weakest of the batch. So it sounds like we agree on the weakest two. Yeah. Not necessarily the weakest one. Because again, Hamlet was just, while there were some visuals in there, it felt like the actors were directed to keep it downplayed and low-key and just let the words do the magic themselves. And that's not 
the way it's supposed to be done, and it just comes out as flat. I can see that. I can see that. Like I said, for me, it was more the... I didn't feel like there were... Well, and maybe this comes... I, actually, I think we're saying the same thing. I don't think there was much directing in Hamlet. Yeah, I almost feel like because so many people that have been so animated in other roles were so subdued, I almost feel like they were directed to keep it low-key. So shall we tell people what we're looking at next year? Or next month? Uh, yes, we will be taking a trip across the bridge over the River Kwai. Yeah, so the bridge on the River Kwai won, and it was nominated against 12 Angry Men, Peyton Place, Sayonara, and Witness for the Prosecution. Th that's a tough year. <laughs> when Rob Kelly was on for How Green Was My Valley, he talked about how he had a grudge against that film because it beat Citizen Kane. I have not seen The Bridge on the River Kwai yet, but I have a similar grudge against it because one of the other nominees is not only my favorite film of the year or even my favorite film of the decade, it's in like my top three films of all time. So I'm coming in, maybe not with the healthiest attitude, because it's going to be, okay, show me why you deserve to beat that one. Yeah. Uh, I won't name that film until we're actually having a conversation next month, but you could probably guess. So yeah, join us next month when we go through the bridge on the River Kwai, which was the deemed or voted to be the best picture of everything that was uh, released in Los Angeles in 1957. And thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.